Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word already and turn with me to the book of Leviticus. That is right. This will be, you're going to hear me say that very phrase, turn to the book of Leviticus. If you've been here, you know, for quite some time. And uh, I couldn't be, honestly, as excited as football makes me, I, I could, it doesn't even compare to how excited I am to be able to study this book with you for the next, you know, however long. Um, so, um, and why, you might be thinking Leviticus, Pastor Cody, what, what are you thinking? You know that's the Bible reading plan killer. Why would you choose that? But, well, a couple of things. Now, when you get to Leviticus, like in March, you'll be, you know, hearing it week in, week out. So you'll be prepared to understand what it means. Second, did you hear the kids' time this morning? God wants us to read and study His Word. Guess what Leviticus happens to be? God's Word. All right, so let's go ahead and read. We're going to read uh, chapter 20, um, verses 22 through 27 this morning. The goal this morning, of course, is just to introduce the book. So this is going to be a little bit different of a sermon. It's an introductory sermon to the uh, book of Leviticus. Uh, And so beyond the initial scripture reading, what we're really going to do is, is if if you know us here, typically what we like to do is take a line-by-line approach, look at the scripture, dive deep into the scripture. Um, Today we're going to take kind of an overall wide-angle lens to the view of the book of Leviticus, looking at the big theme primary issues that will help us in the rest of our exploration in this book. That's why your outline looks the way it does. It's an introductory sermon. By the way, that's, a, that's an edited down, made to fit the piece of paper outline. I had more, um, but I was told that I needed to cut that, so I did. Um, actually, Pastor Justin did for me. So uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 22 through 27. Let's read this together. Um, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and my judgments and perform them. That the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you. For they committed all things, uh, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. And you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or woman who is a medium or as familiar spirit shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be Upon them, First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, we do indeed thank You for Your word. We thank You for all of Your counsel to us. We thank You that You have not left us without a clear testimony to Your grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, that You have given us a very direct and special revelation in this Your word That we might come to know you as far as it is capable for man to know the true and living God. Lord, you've revealed how we are to think about this world, how we are to think about ourselves and sin and our relationship with you in your word. So this morning as we consider the book of Leviticus, I pray, Father, that you would help us to see how this fits into the overarching story of redemptive history. That you would help us see how this fits in your purpose in this world to make for yourself a people. That you might dwell among them in holiness and that they might be holy even as you are holy. 
Visit us this morning with your grace, Father. Open our eyes and ears and our hearts that we might receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, you ready? You excited? Get your pens out and get your, your, your notes out. Um, in fact, if you noticed in, in the reading this morning in Leviticus chapter 20, the choice of that scripture was not random, nor was it arbitrary. Um, and yet, I'm, I'm not going to go into great detail in the effort this morning again to exegete or explain that particular text. The reason I read it was really just to present a, a small bit of why people come to the book of Leviticus with great apprehension. It's why, uh, why I've teased many of you for the last year or so, even people outside of Grey Gables, that I was going to be preaching through the book of Leviticus. At some point, I got responses like, why? <laughs> um, really? <laughs> uh, someone actually even very dear to me asked, are, are you sure that's a good idea? Um, and I'm actually confident that as we explore the book of Leviticus together, we are going to catch a vision of God's holiness. A bigger vision of God's holiness even than we have already. We will come to a deeper knowledge of sin and a desperate need to be cleansed of that sin. I'm convinced that through the study of this book, we will have a better understanding of the work of Christ and a greater appreciation for His atoning sacrifice. That we as a church will have a greater commitment to our calling as the people of God to be a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. So today, again, we'll be introduced to this beautiful book. We'll set the stage and then next week we'll dive in to see what the Lord has in store for us for the, of course, next number of however long it takes us. So I pray that you're as excited as I am. I want to start with this. I want to start with some of the conceptions or probably more likely misconceptions of the book of Leviticus that exist in our culture and even in the church today. Some of the common conceptions or misconceptions of the book of Leviticus. The first is Leviticus is a difficult book to understand. You maybe have that conception of Leviticus. This is one of the common ones that Leviticus is a difficult book to understand. And look, while it may be true to some extent, yes... I think we'll see if we learn how to interpret this book and and come to understand the cultural historical context of the Israelites that it's actually not that difficult as it first appears at least when it comes to a cursory look or a, a superficial reading. Another conception or really a misconception of the book of Leviticus in this case is Leviticus is an irrelevant book. That's one we probably wouldn't really say out loud, but we tend to treat it as such in our uh, passing through it. That Leviticus is a relevant book. And I, I, I pray, I hope to show you that is a straight up misconception. You and I have much to gain from reading through and understanding the book of Leviticus. Another misconception is that Leviticus is severe or harsh. Leviticus is severe or harsh, thinking specifically of the penalties in Leviticus that we see often. Even some of the rules seem very severe and harsh. Again, I hope to show you as we read through this book, even touching on this this morning, that it's really not the case. Um, 
It's also perceived, another misconception, as a virtually unknown book. Leviticus is a virtually unknown book. This one, unfortunately, is is true. For the Christian, this is a book that we do not spend time in. This is a book that we do not consider much. Even less often do we really appreciate its content. And to that, I say, what a shame. In fact, this would not have been the case for Jesus Christ himself, who would have loved the Pentateuch as a whole and would have been taught from the earliest of age the content of the book of Leviticus. It would have been instruction for the people of God, Jesus being one of them. And so those are the probably conceptions or misconceptions we might have when we come to the book of Leviticus. But what's the truth about Leviticus? If that's some of the things we perceive, then let's hear about what Leviticus actually is. What is the truth about, to Levit- about Leviticus? How are we to conceive of the book of Leviticus? I love Derek Tidball's comment at this point, which thank you, by the way, for actually caring about the commentaries I'm using for this book. Many of you are, <laughs> I didn't expect you to buy all 10 of those commentaries, by the way. I should have prefaced that. But if you want to look at where we're going and get some additional help, those would be helpful for you. Derek Tidball and his commentary, his comment at this point about the truth of Leviticus was very helpful. He said this. He said, Leviticus is good news. Now, That might sound strange for anyone who has read through it, right? But I think that's exactly what we'll find is that this was good news to the Israelites. It was. It was good news. See, the immediate literary and historical context was one in which Leviticus follows Exodus and comes before Numbers. But but think of it just historically again. What had just happened in the life of the Israelites? They had just been redeemed out of Egypt. They were brought to Mount Sinai, brought into a special covenant relationship where the holy king of the universe would be their God and they were to be his people. Specifically, they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were given instructions on how to build a tabernacle, a beautiful tent where God himself would dwell in their midst. And now imagine you are an Israelite and you've just been redeemed out of slavery, freed for a purpose to serve the only true and living God. You've experienced the descending of the Lord upon Mount Sinai in all of his glory. You were overwhelmed. The response was falling on your face. And then you're told this God is going to be dwelling in your midst on a regular basis. He is going to take up residence in your midst. There would be some burning questions in your mind, would there not? For instance, how is this holy God the one we cannot even approach on the foot of the mountain without being burned up, how is he going to dwell right in the middle of the camp? Nevertheless, the the last time Moses went up into that mountain and received the Ten Commandments, we all kind of went berserk in unholiness and wickedness. And so, really, the, the beautiful thing about Leviticus is that it answers two burning questions for the Israelites. Those burning questions are, how is this holy God going to dwell in the midst of his people? That's the first one. How is this holy God going to dwell in our midst, in the midst of his people? And furthermore, how are the Israelites going to be a holy nation? 
How is this going to happen? God, remember, has called them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. How is that going to be? How are they going to live in light of that calling? See, Leviticus is good news precisely because it answers all those questions. Leviticus teaches the people about the sacrifices that addresses their sin and enable them to worship God in chapters 1 through 7. Leviticus provides the framework for the priest to instruct the people and lead them in worship in chapters 8 through 10. Leviticus reveals laws to deal with impurity that they might be cleansed and become holy before the Lord in chapters 11 through 15. It explains a yearly ceremony called the Day of Atonement that would occur once a year to purify and cleanse every ounce of sin in the camp in chapter 16. And then Leviticus gives a whole series of laws that direct the people on how to live as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in chapter 17 through 27. To the Israelites, Leviticus was a blessing cherished by the covenant community. Because as Derek Tidball writes again, it is good news for sinners who seek pardon, for priests who need empowering, for women who are vulnerable, for the unclean who covet cleansing. For the poor who yearn for freedom, for the marginalized who seek dignity, for animals that demand protection, for families that require strengthening, for communities that want fortifying, and for creation that stands in need of care. All of these issues and more are addressed in a positive way in Leviticus. Okay, so we saw how it's good news for the Israelites, but but what about us, right? What are we to make of Leviticus? If it makes sense in that historical, cultural context that the Israelites would love Leviticus, that they would cherish it, that they would see it as good news, what about us who are no longer under the law but under grace in the new covenant? Well, I can't do better than, again, the words of Derek Tidball where he says this, Leviticus serves as a preliminary sketch of the masterpiece that was to be unveiled in Christ. Leviticus serves as preliminary sketch of the masterpiece that was to be unveiled in Christ. What we find in Leviticus are, again, are types and shadows in which Christ is the reality. We should be used to that now in the Old Testament as we preach through 2 Samuel. We saw a lot of types and shadows in which we knew that Christ was reality. Well, it's the same thing. Spoiler alert. It's the same thing in all of the Old Testament, but it's certainly the same thing in Leviticus. Jesus Christ is our perfect, once for all, atoning sacrifice. Jesus not only makes a new and better covenant, but he fulfilled the whole law for his people before sending his spirit to write his law on their hearts. And so as we go through the book of Leviticus, we will see too that this is indeed good news. All right, well, what about the author and date of this book? We know that that's important when we're going to introductory sermon, so... Of course, as, it, as you come, if you went to our Old Testament survey class, you know this, there's always much debate about uh, the author, specific scholarly debate. I'll keep it brief. 56 times in the book of Leviticus, it says the Lord said to Moses. Moses was the source and author of most of the book, and it was likely written between 1440 and 1260 BC, depending on when you date the Exodus event. So Moses was a source and author, as he was for the rest of the Pentateuch as well. What about the style of language? Is there anything that will help us in our understanding of Leviticus from its style, its genre? Well, most will note that it's kind of written actually like a legal document. But it's not merely a legal document. 
we must remember that a legal document, it's a legal document in a historical setting. And so we would put Leviticus in part of a historical narrative. Leviticus is an historical narrative. That, that's obvious, but it really is also easy to miss, which is why we need to, to say it. Almost every chapter begins with the Lord spoke to Moses. It's a story about God dealing with his people and instructing them on how they are to live in his presence. This, this is a reminder that all these laws are set within a historical framework. Leviticus is the story of God giving his instruction to Israel after redeeming them from Egypt and before bringing them into the promised land to establish a theocratic nation. A nation that would be ruled directly by God. This is delivered to the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai right before they take off and begin their march toward the promised land. There's two other characteristics that are worth noting and, and quite interesting, though, when you think about this particular book. I put these, two, or these two are put together, I believe. That is that the absence of imperative. There are very few imperatives in this book, and there's very few statement of facts in this book. Which is not something you probably would presume. If you know what an imperative is, we obviously need to understand that, right? Imperative would mean command. There's actually an absence of commands, of imperatives, which is fascinating when you recognize this is a book of the law. You'd expect many commands, but in reality, most of the Old Testament books have three to four times as many imperatives or commands as the book of Leviticus. In fact, the Psalms have ten times as many imperatives as the book of Leviticus. Furthermore, there, there are very few statements of facts. So if, if commands and facts are relatively few, how does Leviticus encourage its reader? Leviticus encourages us to use our imagination and conceive of an ideal society where certain things are done and certain things are not done. The tone is much more like, of course you will not steal, than you shall not steal. The whole cast of the book is much less restrictive and much more uplifting and inspiring than its popular image would suggest. All right. That's the truth about Leviticus. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at some special issues that we need to deal with with the book. Special issues we need to deal with in the book of Leviticus that will go a long way, again, in helping our interpretation as we read through it. So, so pay special close attention. Obviously, you should be paying attention to, to all of it, but don't start paying attention now. And if you're just starting, repent from, for not early. No, I'm kidding. Um, but pay, pay special attention to special issues because they will become or have become stumbling blocks for people as they encounter certain things here. I'm hoping it will not be the case as we look at this morning. The first is the idea of accommodation. The Lord communicates his values to us in a way that we can understand by using the cultural realities that exist in our societies. So this is accommodation, a special issue. The Lord communicates his values to us in a way that we can understand by using the cultural realities that exist in our societies. So, so many of Israel's laws are going to seem strange to us, right? If you've ever read the book, you know that right off the bat, these laws are strange. But it's because the Lord was speaking to a people who lived in a very different culture, and he was accommodating communication to them in that context. And so practices, he commands and addresses practices that are very foreign to our own cultural setting. 
For example, priests were forbidden from mourning, crying, or being upset. They were instructed not to shave their heads or shave off the edges of their beards. Justin still lives in that reality, I think, today. So. But, but those laws, they sound very strange to us, don't they? Why would we not be able to, to shave or cry or to mourn if something upsets us? Well, when you understand it in its historical cultural context, you understand that at this point in Israelite history, those practices were connected to pagan rites. And so all of a sudden, it's not so strange anymore or hard for us to understand. For us, shaving our heads holds no connection or significance. Usually it's just a step in the direction of, I'm going bald and I want to expedite this process in our culture. But... The Lord also makes use of cultural concepts, not just practices, but cultural concepts that were part of their culture. For example, ritual states, being, being holy or being unclean, being pure and impure, those are ritual states which the Israelites already understood from the surrounding historical cultural context. And, and again, for us, these things are foreign, but these ideas were everyday language for the Israelites. Another special issue that has to be addressed and probably one of the most popular ones is which law applies today? Right? There's a lot of laws we said. It's the book of law. Which of those Levitical laws apply for us today? Well, to answer that question, we must understand a couple of things. And, and the first thing is that we must recognize that laws are the expressions of the value of the lawgiver. Right, the values of, excuse me, values of the lawgiver. So laws are the expressions of the values of the lawgiver. So in the past, it's been common to take the law and the Old Testament and just, uh, and in fact, we've answered this question before in this way, and this is a way I believe people interpret the Old Testament laws. They kind of uh, divide it between the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. If you've taken our Old Testament class, Old Testament survey, you would have heard this, and it, it's not that that's necessarily the wrong way to do things, right? They, they would say that the ceremonial law has that to do uh, uh, with the priest, and that's now obsolete because of the work of Christ, so throw out those ceremonial laws in Leviticus. The civil law no longer applies to us because we no longer live in a theocratic and, uh, nation, and, and the moral law is what still applies to us because there are universal moral Laws. So that's how you separate it, civil, ceremonial, and moral. Everything that has to do with the priest is ceremonial, throw that out, not for us. Everything that has to do with Israelite as a nation is civil, no longer has to do with us. We live in a constitutional republic, so throw that out. Everything that has to do with moral is what still applies with us today. And the only problem with that is when you look at the Old Testament law, it's not as if it just says, here's the ceremonial, here's the civil, here's the moral. It's not clean cut and easy to do, nor is it really necessarily the best approach. Again, we must understand that the laws are the expression of the values of the lawgiver. Most societies, for instance, value life, so there are clear laws against murder. Right? Most societies value personal property, so there are clear laws against stealing. The laws reflect or should reflect the values of the society. Likewise, the law that the Lord gives in Leviticus, they are an expression of his values. See, the reason he commands the Israelites not to collect every bit of the harvest but leave some behind is because he values generosity towards the poor. Furthermore, these values flow from the Lord's character. 
And we know that the Lord's character is perfect and constant. So, so it's important. So they flow from the Lord's character, and we know the Lord's character is perfect and constant. So if these values, if they flow from his character, and, and we know this to be true, that God, his character is perfect, and it's constant, it's never changing, we also know that these values do not change any more than the Lord's character changes. So when we look at the laws in Leviticus, we must therefore look at the values it holds for the law giver. And so there's much for us to learn from these laws in Leviticus. But there's, there's a couple things really quickly. I don't know if this is in your outline. I, I already forgot. Um, but if it's not, you can write them in. Um, there, there's a couple things we must learn on how to apply these things we learn in Leviticus. Uh, the first is that, remember, the laws of Leviticus belong to the Sinai Mosaic Covenant which are no longer in force, right? We need to recognize that. Jesus, remember, has inaugurated a new covenant. We are no longer under the covenant of Moses. We are no longer under the law. We are under grace. Secondly, the laws in Leviticus, again, as we just said, are an expression of the Lord's values in a specific historical context. I think I've already beat that drum, right? Do I need to beat it again? (laughs) All right, no, I won't. Thirdly, Because all of these are based on the Lord's unchanging values, they have something to teach us about the sort of values we are to have if we're to reflect the character of God. So coming back to our question, which laws apply today? Well, let's think about this. Here's the best way I can think to say it. Only the commands that are repeated directly in the New Testament apply directly. The ones that are not repeated are not to be obeyed directly, but communicate values that should therefore inform our ethics. That's a, that's a long point. You're right, Justin. I should have shortened that down. Uh, so only the ones that directly apply today, and the, the, the ones given in the New Testament, only ones that directly apply in our New Testament reality, the ones that are not repeated in the New Testament... They're not to be obeyed directly, but they do communicate value that should inform our ethics. Make sense? Clear as mud? Hopefully a little clearer. All right. What about the penalties found in Leviticus? Let's move on to the penalties there. What about those, those, those harsh penalties? As I've already touched on, some think of this book as very harsh and severe, and it's a large part of why they do so, because there are penalties in the book of Leviticus that from our historical, cultural perspective seem harsh and even seem to be unjust at times. Well, we must acknowledge our own historical, cultural prejudices first and foremost, right? Uh, we, We judge the rightness and the morality of those penalties from that perspective, and we have to recognize that. Secondly, we have to understand, well... The Israelites' historical cultural context. You see that theme again and again. I'm not going to stop saying it because it's over and over again. So let me help us in regard to the penalties right now. We must understand the harshest penalties in this book, the one, the one that bothers us the most, which also or most often involves stoning someone to death or excommunicating them. We must understand that these harshest penalties were associated with acts of treason against the king. Okay? We have to, have to view it. That's, that's the historical cultural context we need to view this in. Is these harshest penalties, they were associated with acts of treason against the king. See, that, that was a paradigm. 
it wasn't simply sin against a God out there. It was an act of treason against a king in your midst. It's really no different than an earthly kingdom with an earthly king. And you have a subject who's sworn allegiance to this one king, but has started actually serving another king and has done so right in front of the king they originally professed their allegiance to. They've conspired against the king they swore allegiance to, and almost any earthly kingdom, the consequence or penalty for that would be death. Treason almost always results in death, but it's not only the fact that God is the king who dwells in our midst, and to transgress his law is an act of treason. It's also that the Israelites recognize far better than we, I'm afraid, that they were completely dependent upon the Lord. The Israelites depended on their covenant relationship, and sin fractured that relationship. They recognized that. The Israelites depended on their covenant relationship, and sin fractured that relationship. Transgressing the law was breaking the covenant with God. Israel's very identity was wrapped up in the relationship to the Lord. They did not truncate or, or compartmentalize their lives into, here's my life with God, and then here's the rest of my life without God. They were either with God or were cut off. And to be cut off from God, guess what? Means to be cut off from life. And they got that. That's why Moses cries out to the Lord, if you remember the story, after the Lord threatens to send them into the promised land without him. So they receive everything the Lord has given them. But God says, I'm not going with you. And Moses says, no, please, if you do not go with us, Lord, don't send us away. It is better to stay in the desert at the foot of Mount Sinai than to live in the promised land without the Lord. Israel got that. So transgressing the law was breaking covenant with God. This is a serious offense with serious consequences. And remember also, this is not something that just happened at an individual level either. There were repercussions for the sins of the people that would impact the entire community. And it's no different from us. Listen, I I can't mention this without also mentioning the fact that the The Lord has given us a similar command in that we are to practice church discipline for similar reasons. And so when you think about the historical cultural context of the Israelites and how they are to envision their relationship with God, those same principles actually apply to us. Now, before you go running for the door, certainly we are not commanded to, nor should we take anyone outside and stone them. Yet... We are told if someone in our midst exercises treason against the Lord, continuous, habitual, unrepented sin, that they are to be cut off from this covenant community. Did you know that? Friends, we ignore that to our peril. We're going to explore that in much greater depth as we move through Leviticus. But again, something I had to mention here, that's the New Testament application here. Alright, so another issue that must be addressed would be ritual. There's a lot of rituals in the book of Leviticus. How are we to understand them? Again, I I admit this is a a foreign concept in our culture. We're not a very ritualistic people, although we tend to be sometimes. We've got plenty of rituals. We just don't recognize them as such or merely as elaborate. 
But Jay Sklar, uh, in his commentary, says this, most broadly speaking, he says, a ritual identifies a person, time, or event as being unique in some way. A birthday celebration identifies the person is one year older. Wearing black can identify that it's a time of mourning. A graduation ceremony identifies that students have finished a course of study. Significantly, the more important the person, time, or event, the more elaborate the ritual tends to become. Going on a first date may involve buying flowers or a meal, while getting married may involve the purchase of many flowers, food for our closest family and friends, the presence of fancy clothes and special music, and so on. So, so the more important the event, the more elaborate the ritual. The, the point is, while we may find the importance of details in Leviticus boring and unimportant, they are often clues that we are reading something of great significance. So when reading the rituals prescribed in Leviticus, we must work to understand what purpose lies behind them. Sacrifices, we'll move on for that. Sacrifices for sin is another issue that we'll have to address as we move through the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus makes clear that these sacrificial atonement, the sacrifices of animals, leads to the sinner being forgiven. Again and again, these animal sacrifices actually result in the person being forgiven of their sin. Now, immediately, as as New Testament believers who know their New Testament well, our minds probably wander around to to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, which which tells us, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Okay, well then, what do we do with Leviticus where it says that sins are actually forgiven with the sacrifices... And Hebrews, which says that's certainly not possible. How do we reconcile this apparent contradiction? Does it or doesn't it? Well, it appears to cleanse in the Old Testament, but we know clearly the blood of animals cannot actually ransom a person from their sin. Again, Jay Sklar responds in this way. He says, Atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament may be compared to writing a check. The purpose of the check was to cover the debt of sin. The Lord in His grace received the check and declared the debt paid, graciously assuring forgiveness to the offerer, but He did not cash it. Okay, catch that. He he receives it, He graciously receives it, and He declares the debt paid, but He does not cash the check. For if He had done so in the grand scheme of things, it would have bounced. (laughs) In the grand scheme of things, it's not possible for the lifeblood of an animal to fully ransom the lifeblood of a human. So why did the Lord receive it as payment at the time? Because he knew that there would one day be money in the account to cover the debt, to follow the analogy. So he receives the check. He doesn't cash it because it would have bounced. Again, just an analogy. But he receives the check because he knows one day in the future that account is going to be full. Namely, when Jesus, as Sklar says, gave his lifeblood as the perfect and final ransom for the lifeblood of sinners. Stated differently, the atoning sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointers to a much greater atoning sacrifice to come. One that would be enough to cover the debt fully and finally. What must not be missed is that it is the one who has been sinned against who covers the debt for the sinner. But God demonstrates his own love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right. We're almost done. How are we doing on our outlines? Did we give up like 30 minutes ago? Are we still good? All right, good. Okay. 
Last but not least, the theology of Leviticus. I need to apologize for my self-deprecating humor. I'm told I have too much of that. Um, It's genetic. The theology of Leviticus. The primary theme of Leviticus is this holy king is instructing his people, his holy people, so that he might dwell among them. That's the picture already mentioned at the beginning. But, but, but that is the primary theme or the theology of Leviticus. In a word, Leviticus is really about holiness. And that's one of the reasons I want to choose this book. We could all always use a little bit better understanding of holiness. You arrived yet in your holiness? If you think you have, you haven't. (laughs) That's your first sign that you haven't. God is holy, and His people must be holy, for He has and will make them holy. So so let's make sure we understand holy. If the book of Leviticus is about holiness, then we would do well to understand what that means. To be holy is simply to be set apart. People and things are made holy by others. That is... They are set apart as distinct, but the Lord is holy in His nature. His holiness is not dependent. Our holiness is dependent. We're set apart by the Lord for the Lord. Tidball explains the three different aspects of holiness intertwined in the book of Leviticus. The three ideas come in the form of a statement, a command, and a promise. First, Leviticus makes... The statement loud and clear, God is holy. God's revelation of himself in the words, I am holy, is the fundamental premise on which Leviticus is built. We see it repeated time and time again in Leviticus. In Leviticus, God is specially revealed as holy in power and moral purity. Also, Leviticus issues a command. It not only makes the statement that God is holy, but it also issues a command for God's people to be holy. Be holy, he says, because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. The holiness that is commanded, do not miss this, is comprehensive. I mean, uh, while some of the details might seem mundane to us, the point is, the point the Lord's making in this book is there is no aspect of an Israelite's life that was not set apart unto the Lord. That was not to reflect the, the holiness of, of God. This holiness was comprehensive. In other words, the, the Israelites were not to leave their worship behind these four walls. They were understanding through the Levitical law, it touched on every part of their lives. Third, the Leviticus makes a promise both explicitly and implicitly that the Lord will make His people holy. The Lord says, I am the Lord who makes you holy. The goal of holiness is not to be reached unaided, folks. It always and only happens by the grace of God. Tidball concludes, holiness then is a statement about God, a command to His people and a promise concerning His Spirit. The summons of Leviticus leaps across the yawning cultural divide and the intervening centuries to call us once again to holy living. Christian believers, no less than Israel, are called to be holy and to pursue holiness in every dimension of their lives. Like Israel, we too have been set free by Christ, but not so that we might continue to live in sin or with indifference to God. Rather, we have been set free to be holy. I'm going to conclude here with Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. 
It's a passage that's, that's pivotal to our understanding in, in many things, and it's, it's very helpful. Uh, I'll give you a couple thoughts, and then we'll close. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14 tells us, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the pursuit, purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, this passage, it cannot be fully understood without Leviticus. I don't know how many times you've read it, but, it, but if you've never really understood Leviticus, then you've never really understood what Hebrews 9 is saying. Leviticus produces a type, a shadow, a picture of Christ in his work. In Leviticus, we will meet the office of high priest. We will see the tent where the special presence of God dwelled. We will learn about the need for and means of the sins of God's people being atoned by the sacrifices of animals. And through all of these people, places, and events, we will come to see Jesus as the fulfillment to which they all pointed. Jesus is the main character of Leviticus. You surprised by that? Shouldn't be. Jesus is the true and high priest who was able to enter into the holy places. He's the better high priest who entered in on our behalf without fear of penalties. Because he was holy and free from sin. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. He not only entered the place, but he is himself the holy place. The place where the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. No longer was God in the holy of holies, but in Christ, God was once again walking among mankind. Jesus was the true and better sacrifice. He didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats, which he could never really ransom us from sin. He offered his own lifeblood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. He was the perfect sacrifice that he offered once for all for the forgiveness of sins. And so as the writer of Hebrews says, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? And friends, how much more will become our mantra as we read through the book of Leviticus? If the book of Leviticus was good news to the Israelites, how much more should we learn to delight in this book, which was the preliminary sketch of the masterpiece that was to be unveiled in the gospel of Jesus Christ? How much more should we desire to put our dead works away to serve the living God? How much more should we believe that He indeed is making us holy? And how much more should we be Focused on obeying the Lord's command to be holy. How much more? Church family, welcome to the book of Leviticus. I cannot wait to see what the Lord does in our lives as we study this book. Would you stand with me as we close together? Gracious Father, as we explore this book, we pray that you would be gracious and giving us eyes to see truly how holy you are. That we might learn to revere you, to worship you, to stand in awe of the only true and living God. Father, we pray that we would come to better understand our own sin. 
that we might come to understand what it really is to transgress your law, to be covenant breakers and to risk being cut off. Father, we might really appreciate Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That we might come to understand the glory of His atoning sacrifice that ransoms and cleanses us. Lord, please teach our hearts to simply say, how much more in Christ? Lord, as we read this book, as we study this book together, the theme of our hearts would simply be how much more in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. But as we come to our time of invitation this morning, are you excited, church family? I, I, I thank you so much. I, I was just reflecting this week on, uh, on a grateful heart for this church that's always hungry for the Word of God. In fact, I was, I've told many of you, I think I've said this before, a conversation I had not too long ago with someone who was asking me on my theological uh, opinions that was maybe not as popular, and they asked, they said, you know, maybe you should present all, and I said, one of the best things I love about First Baptist Church of Greg Gables is they don't really care what my opinion is, they want to know what the Word says, um, and I love that about this church, and it's why uh, your pastor is always fired up to, to not only introduce new books to you, but be able to dig in deep to God's Word uh, to really, truly hear what it is he has to say, because that's where the power is at, right? That's where the power is to change life, is in God's Word. So join me in this excitement. I will be sending you, I know we've given you a two-week break. I will be sending a reading list out this week. Um, if you want to be a part of our, our reading list, if uh, maybe um, you're not on the text thread, uh, you might want to speak to church members and, and get all the warnings about once you get off that. I kind of blow your phone up on occasions. Um, but if you'd like to receive a reading list this week, I, uh, it's my heart to want to, to, to cause you to be engaged in the Word of God with me. And so I like to send out... Uh, opportunities for you to out, throughout the week to be thinking about the sermon ahead of time, to be dwelling on the scriptures with me together so that we can come ready to hear from God's word. And so maybe if you're not on that list, please come see me after service. I'll put you on that list and make sure I have your cell phone number and be able to communicate that to you. Our invitation is pretty simple this morning. The call is, is to be holy. And if we're honest, we as, we as human creatures know that we are incapable of this holiness on our own, that we have sinned, that we are stained with sin, and yet the, the promise of the gospel is that he who was truly holy came and was holy and paid the price for our sin for us and now gives us his righteousness and then calls us to join him in holiness. And so if you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for your sins, then make today that very day hear uh, the word of God. You and your sins are deserving of a wrath from a holy God who created you and purposed you to bring honor and glory to Him. You failed to bring honor and glory to Him because of your choice in sin and continual sin. It's who you are by nature. Our father Adam sinned and therefore we join him in that. And therefore we are disqualified from entering into the Lord's presence apart from Him doing something for us. And He certainly did. He sent His only Son Jesus, fully God and fully man, to live a life that you and I should have lived but could not live. And then He paid the penalty, the price for our sins and his death on the cross. And not only that, but he's given us the gift of his righteousness so that God can look at us no longer as simply people who are his enemies and deserving his wrath, but he can look on us and see us covered in the righteousness of his son, his perfect 
and Holy Son. And for that we say, Amen and thank you, Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, the very lifeblood for us to live, it's a fuel to the fire to us, call us to live for holiness. We live not because it earns us any righteousness and holy living. We live because we know what we are, we know what we were, and know what we've been made in Christ. And so our desire is simply in gratitude and an honor to Him to live lives that reflect our great salvation. But if you're not in Christ this morning, uh, then you do not have that righteousness upon you. Then if you were to die today, the Lord would simply merely look at you as somebody He deeply loves and created, but who has exchanged His glory for the glory of self. And that is a, that is a punishable, treasonable offense in the eyes of the Lord. And you will experience that punishment apart from someone dying in your place. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus did. And if you simply repent of your sins, declare yourself knowing yourself to be unworthy and declaring Christ as worthy, turning from serving yourself to turning Christ and then trusting in His finished work on the cross, then today can be the day you can enter into the family of God and be saved.